Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 2, Bethlehem Logistics. We're in Luke chapter 2. I finally graduated out of Luke 1. We've been in it forever, it seems. And now to the most well-known chapter in Luke, uh, the most well-known story, which is, of course, the nativity, the story of Christ uh, coming to earth as a baby. Uh, most well-known chapter in Luke, most well-known chapter, I would suggest to you, in the entire Bible by the populace. Maybe not by the church, but certainly by the world. If you ask anything they know about the Bible, well, there's something about Jesus being born and laid in a manger. They all say laid in a manger, you know, born in a manger. He wasn't born in a manger. He was kind of hard to get her up there, you know, to have the baby. I'm thinking, I don't think I'd be super uncomfortable. But it uh, doesn't say that. It says he was laid in a manger. And uh, so lots of other things like that that we've added or subtracted from the story. And uh, chapter, like I said, has been the source of songs and carols and cards and celebrations, um, books, dramas, pageants, all these things. Uh, like I said, the most well-known chapter arguably in the whole Bible. So familiar are we with what it says in this chapter. Our tendency is to kind of gloss over it. Uh, we read it every year, uh, this time of year, maybe multiple times. We've heard the story since we were children in many cases. It's certainly my case. Uh, so, so, so well known that we don't tend to see it anymore. We tend to go right through it, pass right through it, and not really listen to what it actually says and what it, what it does not say. And uh, we have embellished the story in some cases to a very large extent. Uh, not going to have a chance to discuss it any other time other than simply now to say, you know, for instance, like, just as an example, the three wise men, right? Where do you get that from? Not from the Bible. <laughs> Never says there's three. Never says anything about the number of them. In fact, if you know the background of these guys, it's unlikely there was less than a hundred of them. Uh, maybe several hundred. It's very unlikely that this ruling class of the enemies of the Romans would travel into a Roman territory just three dudes. Probably had quite a large entourage with some, you know, they were, these guys were ruling class heads of state kind of people. Uh, I've never seen people like that travel with just two or three people. They would have not done that. So, um, doesn't say there wasn't either. It could have been three. I don't know. But like I said, back to the whole scenario, we've just kind of added and subtracted things that really are not for there for us to add and subtract because we just tend to gloss over the story. We're so familiar with it that we're no longer familiar with it anymore. And so we're going to spend some time on it this, this week and next week. Um, but here's just to sum it up, in case you're not back next week or in case you, I don't know, fall asleep on me here in a real, sec, real quick. Here's all of chapter 2 in a one sentence. Chapter 2 of Luke just simply is this. 2,000 years ago, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, entered human society as a baby. That's the story. That is what happened. I would suggest the most important event in human, not human, in, in universal history is God becoming one of us. Now, obviously, the most important part in human history is that, that God died to save us from our sins and rose again to prove it, that he was the Savior. Now, human history, that's the most important event. But as far as global, universal history, God becoming permanently one of us forever uniting both divine and humanity into one person, indivisible, forever. That is the greatest event that has ever happened in the entire universe. By far. By far. Uh, so let's read this event. Let's take a look at this simple story 
only seven verses. I said so greatly embellished in, in so many cases, unfortunately, but uh, let's, let's see what it says and what it does not say, at least to begin with today. It says, now it came about in those days. What days? Well, the previous chapter, we've been spending three months on it. It's the days where you've got two pregnant ladies, right? One Elizabeth, the older cousin to Mary. Uh, both of them miraculous births. One is, in fact, a virgin birth and or virgin pregnancy up until now. And in those days, these times, six months before this, John the Baptist has been born, and this significant predecessor, forerunner to Christ has now come, the prophet of God being announced by angels, and angels that haven't shown up on the scene of Israel for better part of 500 years. God has changed, stuff is changing really fast. In nine-month uh, period, we've had all these things take place, angels appearing to lots of people, miracles being, being uh, proliferating, and and now we're ready for the miracle of God's Son being born. And so we're ready here, uh, continuing. It says, now in those days, the decree, it says, went out from Caesar Augustus. Who was that? We'll get to that. That a census be taken all the inhabited earth. Why do you want to know? Why does he want to count noses? Because he wants to tax those noses. Tax is not a new thing. This guy didn't lack money. And you wonder why does government need more money? I can't answer that question. I can just tell you they have always wanted more, and this is nothing new. So here we go. This was the first census. He continued to take them every 10 years, of 48 years of administration. He set up a precedent for the whole Roman government. They continue to do this. Uh, this was the first one, though, that was taken while Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why would Syria matter? Well, Syria is the whole region under which Palestine is a protectorate. So this guy's a governor over this whole region. That's the reason why his name is mentioned. And we were, all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. That would tr be true, as we're going to see in a minute, only for the Jews, not for, not for anyone else. Joseph also went from Galilee. It's bad news. Got to get up and travel 90 miles. No cars. No, I know your, your Hallmark cards say they had a donkey. Not likely. Um, the reason why I would strike the donkey off your, your uh, Christmas card is because adultery was a luxury. This is not a couple who has money for luxuries. Also, I would strike it off because, well, I'll get to Stay awake, and I'll tell you the second reason. I know you, you just won't be able to, I just can't get through this unless Pastor Bill. I forgot to finish a story, by the way, in the early service, and I had one of the boys come up to me, so whatever happened? <laughs> well, you're paying attention. Thanks for, sorry I forgot to tell you. Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of Bethlehem, which is, called, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, 90 mile trip, one way. In order to register along with Mary, and I'll talk about who had the harder trip, was certainly this sweet lady, who was engaged uh, to him and was with child. Most likely she walked all the way too. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. And so, simple story, right? And we're familiar, like I said, so familiar with this story. Sometimes we, we don't listen to what it says and what it does not say. How did we ever get for something so simple, just seven verses, the most well-known portion of the Bible in the global sense, how do we get something so simple to something so elaborate and complicated today of what we call Christmas? How? how? Well, this is pretty straightforward. Like I said, okay, God became one of us. That's the story. 
Uh, happened in human history 2,000 years ago. He remains one of us forever, united in both God and human, in, indivisible oneness. Uh, how do we get from so, such, such simplicity to such complications of what today is called Christmas and the whole celebration of Christmas? Well, actually, it happened very simply. Uh, it was a decision made by two church leaders, two men. Their wives weren't there, which you always know that's a bad thing. They didn't consult their wives. Honey, don't you see how that would make a be bad for this reason and that reason? These two guys got together. One was the Bishop of Jerusalem. It's a true story. It's not a folktale. Bishop of Jerusalem, Bishop of Rome, two leading men in Christendom at that time, not, not very influential at that time. You would think they are, but may, most of Rome is pagan, and these guys are fighting against that. They got together because neither one of them could answer the question that was being asked all the time of when was Jesus born? No one knew. This is uh, 400 years after the fact, and nobody had kept calendar dates, and so they really didn't know the date. The Bible doesn't give us a date, and so they were constantly asked this question, and so they got together and said, let's decide on a date. Well, the Bishop of Rome, his, his opinion overruled that of that of Jerusalem just simply because he was so emphatic it had to be, he, he wanted it to be, it was arbitrary, he knew it wasn't December 25th, but he wanted it to be December 25th because he was trying to offset some tendencies, not tendencies, the, the main culture in Rome in that day was that of paganism. And what they would celebrate during the month of, of December was the whole winter solstice story. And the whole winter solstice story, story in winter simply goes like this, that, that the earth has died in wintertime. You look around and see the trees are not green anymore and grass has died, right, and animals are hibernating, other things. Well, the scenario of paganism is unless we sacrifice to the gods of the earth, all these demonic deities, they will not resurrect the earth again. Unless we show them how to get excited, and they would do that through partying and through orgies and other things, unless we show them, they will not know how to bring the earth back into the process. So they believed that the whole cycle of the seasons was totally dependent upon whether or not they sacrificed to these gods. And so they would do all kinds of stuff. They would have orgies. They would have parties. They would decorate their house in greeneries. Why do we do that? It's not in the Bible, is it? Where'd you get, the, where'd you get an evergreen or especially a uh, um, kissing underneath a, what is that stuff called? I couldn't think of it. Where'd that come from? Came from ancient paganism. Had they ever come a part of what we do? Well, these two guys, like I said, back again, arbitrarily decided, according to the words of the stronger words of the Bishop of Rome, that we ought to be on December 25th. He's just simply trying to offset the, the tendencies of the people underneath his jurisdiction was to go back into this paganism during this time. And so he wanted to set a holiday, a Christian holiday, in which they could focus on something other than the revelries and the craziness that was going on in paganism in, in Rome and all over the Roman world. So they set December 25th arbitrarily, just simply to distract the people, to pull them towards something. They wanted to celebrate the birth of Christ. Nothing wrong with that. Let's just pick a day. Well, that's advantageous, they decided, so let's just do that. And uh, it, was a, it was a nice thought. It didn't work out. <laughs> what happened was, effectively, all these pagan rituals and all these things down to trimming trees and yule logs and singing carols and going from house to house and all the stuff that they did in paganism just simply got baptized into Christianity. And so we, now we don't even know why we do them anymore. And I'm not saying quit all that stuff. You can, if you're convicted by God to quit it, do it. Uh, I got, well, we don't have a Christmas tree, I guess, honey, because we just moved. But we would have a Christmas tree otherwise. Uh, if your Christmas tree, though, has something to do, if you're praying to the Christmas tree hoping that it grants your wishes or whatever, then, yeah, you should get rid of it. 
But, you know, this whole, there's a whole movement on Christianity to get rid of all the pagan things. And, and if it is distracting to you, I would say yes. Because the focus is Christ. But he definitely was not born in December and certainly not December 25th. Like I said, that was arbitrarily decided and basically cluttered as a result the celebration of Jesus' birth with a whole lot of unrelated pagan elements. So that's how we got to where we are and the craziness. So let's get back to the, what the simplistic story is. Simple story. Accomplished through profound power. Now here's a prediction that we have from the Old Testament. Uh, God given it to Micah 700 years before these events. 700 years before Mary is pregnant and all the things that, that, that Luke is writing about here. He makes a prediction or makes a promise, I should say, about what's going to happen to the Messiah. We've already been, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how God's made a promise to David and to Abraham, both about the land and about a Davidic king of the line of David who would come, who would reign on the eternal throne and an eternal kingdom, which would be on the earth. And it would require that person to be an eternal person. So a very unique person has to come of the line of David. And so here we're adding one more, uh, if you will, addition to the scenario that has to come together with this specific king to come to the throne. Here's what it says. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, literally throw a rock across the whole town. Just nothing to it. Absolutely. Today, not so. But back then, for sure. From you, one will go forth from me, God speaking, to be ruler in Israel. Here it tells us here, this unique, eternal person that he is, was and is and will always be. His going forth are from long ago, from days of eternity, forever, because he's God, you see. Has to be God. We, we discussed that together, or I told you about it at least. At that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. Not quite yet, right? But he is. The one who will be, our, this one, he says, will be our peace. And so what we have here is this scenario where God continues to paint himself into a tighter, tighter corner of all the things that have to come together in order to accomplish what he says is going to happen. I don't know about you, but if you're a year out and you're making predictions about what's going to happen to your life, the best chance of you getting away with it is to make as least amount of details as possible. For instance, maybe a big, a big call for you would just simply be to say, I plan to be alive this time next year. Maybe it'll, you got a 50-50 shot at that, right? But don't, don't make any other predictions about what your life's going to be because you're not in control. You're really not. And so only someone who's in control starts narrowing himself down at 700 years out with these kind of predictions, and that would actually be God. Only he's capable of doing this kind of stuff. So saying that he's going to be eternal king, saying he's going to be the line of David, saying he's going to be an eternal kingdom, saying he's going to come out of a small little town of Bethlehem, what's the chances of that happening? Well, it becomes a logistical uh, craziness uh, when you overwhelming when you start considering all the things. So I want us to consider, and the scripture gives us here, three levels of logistics to get Jesus, or should I should say, Mary and Joseph, into Bethlehem at just the right time where Mary ends her third trimester with a birth. Because I can promise you, it wasn't their plan. Why would I leave my hometown? My mother, here's Mary speaking, the midwives that we know and go to some town that I've never been to before and have my baby way out in the middle of nowhere, much less in a, in a stable and lay him in a manger. I mean, that's crazy, right? Well, how did we get the logistics together to do what God promised was going to happen? There was three levels of, if you will, of obstacles that had to be overcome by his sovereignty. Here's the first level. It's the world level. World level was completely opposed to anything that this would be true. And I say that to say this, paganism was the rule. 
ruled by pagan rulers. Uh, they called the shots. They had no regard with, for, God, for God, no regard for his people, no regard for the word of God. He cared nothing about uh, a, a lady with a crazy story of being conceived uh, as a virgin and, and having this child that they called the Son of God. They cared absolutely nothing for it. Yet nonetheless, they play right into this. How did that happen? Well, in particular, there was a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus who was the, at the time of Jesus' birth, who was the particular one who was calling the shots. You know who he is, right? I'm going to give you a little info about him. Neither, neither Caesar, Caesar nor Augustus was his name. I know you're familiar with those terms, but they're actually both titles. His actual name was, was Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius was a grandnephew and eventually adopted son of Julius Caesar. Familiar with Julius Caesar? Remember that guy? He's the guy that the Roman Senate and Brutus decide he's got too much power, so they kill him, right? I guess, I don't know, I can think of some, lots of government leaders, maybe we could all get together and just execute them. <laughs> kind, of <not> a bad, <laughs> kind of not a bad scenario, you know? You got too much power, let's just have you killed. Et tu Brute, right? You remember the, the this is not a, not, a, not a fable, it actually happened. Brutus, his friend, decided it was, he was too powerful for the, sake of, for the sake of Rome. And so they executed him there in the Senate and every one of them killed him so that none of them could be, couldn't say it was just him or just her or just them, you know, it was all of them together. Anyway, so that was the adopted father of Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius was adopted not because Julius Caesar didn't have any sons or daughters, just because he didn't like any of them. He liked his grandnephew, Gaius Octavius, and he adopted him as his primary son, as the heir to his throne. So when his father adopted, gets stabbed in the Roman Senate, he immediately becomes emperor. I should say, not emperor, he was in a triumvirate. Because they didn't trust a single person being king or emperor anymore, they put together a triad of of leaders. One, Octavius, came, caught, became Octavius Caesar, another dude who I failed to get his name because he ultimately doesn't play any role hardly at all. And the other guy is a guy you will recognize. His name was Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony actually is brother-in-laws to Caesar Augustus. He marries Caesar Augustus' older sister, but you don't know Mark Anthony for that part of the story. You know Mark Anthony because he, you didn't know this, but he divorces Caesar Augustus's sister, which of course burned his bacon because you don't do my sister like that, you know, kind of thing. And he goes over to Egypt and marries a lady by the name of Cleopatra. That's how you know Mark Anthony. It gave a pretext for Caesar Augustus to end the triumvirate and get the Roman Senate backing him and get the Roman legions together. And they fought Mark Anthony and this other guy, kill the other guy. And Mark Anthony, of course, and Cleopatra commit suicide. That's the story. Uh, that actually is history. So all that to just simply say, Caesar Augustus was ruling Rome. He did it for 45 straight years. He did it, as far as government goes, really well. Uh, he instituted what was called, what he's famous for is the Pax Romana, which is the, the Roman peace. Rome, Rome so controlled the world that literally no one fought anybody. Rome put down any insurrection for hundreds of years. It's the longest peace this world has ever known. Uh, we've been living, I was born in 1967. Some of you were born in what, 18 what, something like that. All, how, think of how many wars we've had. In all, this, in all of our coming together of populace of humans and erasing our cultural and language lines, you would think we could get along better and we're constantly going from one war to the next war to the next war to the next war and our guys are, and girls are stationed all over the world. 
somehow to enforce peace, and it isn't working very well. And it didn't work very well. It has never worked very well. It never worked anything like the kind of peace that this guy, Caesar Augustus, put in. Again, his name was not Caesar. It was a title that he adopted. It was a title he got from his adopted father. Augustus was a name that was given to him by the Roman Senate. meant majestic one. They loved him so much, truly. They called him majestic one. They killed his adopted dad, and they loved him uh, so greatly. Uh, he, he enforced the Pax Romana. He built the Roman roads. He was the guy. So he was the guy who also enforced the Greco-Roman culture, and in particular the Greek language that your New Testament was written in. He made sure that everybody was able to read and write this language because he said it's the best language that there is. And we got a Greek New Testament with such detail because this pagan guy, doing it for his own purposes, made sure that Greek was there, made sure that roads were there so that when Paul and the apostles go, he didn't know any of this, all, but when they go, nonetheless, God was using this man to create clear pathways so these guys could go and share the, with the whole world uh, the gospel. And they very quickly took over the world with the truth of Jesus Christ. He was a formidable ruler, a remarkable leader, so much so that they referred to him as, quote, the savior of the world, Caesar Augustus. So this dude, complete pagan, thought he was God, allowed people to worship him as God. Little did he know that he was being moved by their real God to make sure that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, just like God said he would 700 years. So that's the world level of logistics that had to be overcome to get it there. This pagan guy with no intents other than to simply do what he wanted to do, and yet nonetheless he plays right into the hands of everything that God had planned for him and uh, ultimately for Jesus. And so from there we go from, from that to a world level down to a national level. On a national level it says there in verse 2 there was a guy by the name of Quirinius who was the governor of Syria. We already talked about him. Over this whole region including Palestine he was, he was stationed in Damascus. Damascus was a crossroads for a large trade route through there. It was a great place to control it. And so he was governor there but it included Palestine, included what we call Lebanon included parts of Iraq, Iran. I mean, he was governor over a large region. This guy is, by the way, I looked up his full name. I know you've been wondering what his full name was. <laughs> Quirinius was the simple part of his name. Here's his full name. You ready? Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. You thought your name was tough to spell in elementary school. This guy had it bad, didn't he? Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. He was the governor. Uh, why does he matter? Well, it, it, it matters because it tells us about when Jesus was born. We don't know when. Not only do we not know a date, we don't even know a year, and we haven't known for centuries. And we're not going to know because God didn't take the time to tell us because it must not have mattered. So it must not. But nonetheless, at least it, we can hedge in a date of about between a two-year period of when he was born. And Jesus was not born at AD 1 or BC 0. He was actually born because it tells us here that he was born during the first, uh, the first taxation that took place under this Publius Sulpicius uh, Quirinius. And that was, we know exactly when that was, and that was AD, uh, sorry, BC 4 to BC 6. So somewhere between those two years is when Jesus was born. Because that's when the taxation took place. I know when we register for the census, which is, by, by the way, coming up in 2020, it takes place in a single year. In the Roman world, it took 8 to 10 years and based upon that census is when they had to register by name in order to pay their taxes to the Roman government. So somewhere, though, in that window is when Quirinius ruled in a two-year window before 
B.C., and he well, ruled in about an eight-year window, A.D., but it didn't happen until about eight years after the time of Christ, or after the time of birth of Christ. So that's why he matters, because it basically tells us where, where we were in history when, he, when Jesus was born. But all, all this, both, both um, Quirinius and uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, does not get Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem for the birth. Because both of those guys are nothing but Romans, and they don't care where you go to register. They just want, they're just counting noses. You can be anywhere and just simply register, and all males had to register. The women didn't have to do anything. The, the males, so there's no reason for Mary to have to go to Bethlehem, at least according to the rules. And, and there's no reason that they couldn't stay in Nazareth. What got them to Nazareth, got them to Nazareth, listen guys, was the Jews. The Jews were very meticulous about their record keeping. Who you descended from, the, the, the Romans didn't say you got to go to Bethlehem to register. The Jews did. So since the Romans came down on the Jews whom they, Jews whom they ruled, ruled and said, listen, you've got to register all your people. The Jews said, listen, they can only register from where they're from. And so it was their rule, actually, that sent Mary and Joseph. And the reason why they were very, very particular about that is because the, the Jews 400 years before were exiled from their country. They sinned, against the, 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 they sinned against God. They worship other gods, and God sends them away for 70 years. I don't know if you've ever been away from some place for a long time. You go back, things are not the same. Try 70 years. So we're 70 years ago, we, came, we were left this land, and now we're back after 70 years. Who knows where the boundary lines are anymore? Who, you say your house used to be here. Who's got to prove this? Where's... where's Show me, the, show me your boundary markers from Google Maps and have it. So we all show up back in Israel after 70 years of exile, and I start saying, well, I think this is my boundary. They say, no, 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 my father's boundary was over here. Well, my great-grandfather said so and such. Well, my granny said this and such. And so they start arguing about where all this stuff is. So where's the property deeds have all been destroyed by the, by the Babylonians? And so they start going back, and they start counting genealogies. So you say you're, first thing, you had to prove you were a Jew. So you had to trace your lineage back to Abraham. Second thing you had to do is trace your lineage back to a certain person who, if you were owning this land, you had to prove that you belonged to him or to her. And so they began to keep these meticulous records. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Thus comes the books of Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is written after the exile. All these begat so-and-so, and he had so-and-so, and he had three kids, and one of them died, and she had two children, and they moved away to Syria, and all this stuff. They begin to do all this stuff because they were very particular. So when the Romans come down from the hierarchy and say, we got to have taxation, the Jews says, oh, no, no, no. You can't just stay where you are. you got to go back to your homeland. And if you don't have a homeland, then you need to get yourself out of here and go back to wherever you're from because we don't want anybody with the Jews registering here. So thus is the reason why they go back to Bethlehem. So the Romans required a census. The Jews required that you go back to your town. And uh, so... 700 years of timeline here. So Micah makes a prediction, or God does through Micah, 700 years in advance. In, in order for this to get accomplished, God's got to cross the logistics of a greedy Roman ruler who thought nothing of, except for himself and just wanted more money and thought he was nothing but thought he was God himself anyway. 400 years of Jews keeping detailed records logistically came together so that Mary and Joseph could arrive in Bethlehem by the way, how long does it take a baby to get here? About nine months. So they couldn't be there eight months, and they couldn't be there ten months. 
And they couldn't be there in the halfway between 8 and 9. I know some babies come early, but, and I have no reason to think Jesus did. I think he probably hit 9 months, pretty, pretty close. So they had to get him there. By the way, uh, in addition to this, Mary and Joseph, you think they had plans to travel 90 miles? You know, I have a great idea. Since you conceived immaculately, why don't we walk 90 miles and make sure that the pregnancy comes just on time when you get to... No! Why would she not stay in Nazareth where her mom is and her aunts are and where the midwife is? And, and, and like I said, the, the other part of it, and by the way, this is, brings us to our third level of logistics. So you've got a world-level logistics. You've got a, a national-level logistics. And both of these make sure that you're taxed, one that's taxed, and the other one that's your taxed in your hometown. The third level is, and here's the, the pers- is the personal level. Only the man had to go. So a 90-mile trip for a man who was in pretty good shape, uh, and I would suggest you that Joseph probably was, was a 14-day turnaround. 14 days he's back. Why doesn't he leave her? Well, well, I can tell you from my own personal experience, if I left her, I'd be in big trouble when I got back. <laughs> but also from a, from a curiosity experience, um, I was told by an angel that we're having the Son of God. I don't want to miss that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a wild thinker. I'm thinking he's coming out shining like gold or something. I don't know. Of course, he wasn't. He was just a regular baby in, in every sense of appearance. But th- there's another reason I would suggest to you, and it's only a suggestion that he doesn't leave her, is because he can't. Who, who, who's believing Mary's story at this point? Just Joseph. She's nuts. I mean, who conceives immaculately? And, uh, and, and or she's a liar because there's some man involved, and she lives in a very religious society, and they persecuted people like that. So I've got a little girl, 14, 15 years old, who's big pregnant, and I'm going to leave for a 14-day trip? No. Now, it's terrible. 90 miles on foot, it's terrible. By the way, back to the whole scenario. When was the last time anybody rode a donkey? See, I know your Christmas card says it has to be a donkey, and I'm, th- I'm telling you, they didn't have the money for a donkey, but even if they borrow one, I doubt Mary got on it, because the donkeys are not comfortable. And if you're big pregnant, it's, it's as bad as it is to walk, it's better to walk than it is to ride one of those crazy things. So maybe they had their goods on the back of a donkey, but Mary probably walked the 90 miles. And they were tougher back then. <laughs> they were tougher just to walk 90 miles, and I'm nowhere close to pregnant, and I'm just thinking, nope. <laughs> she, she did. Uh, so, so what we have here from all the personal and national and world logistics is the single scenario that would bring this couple into this town at the exact time that this boy was to be born. So we, we read the story and we say, oh, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We move right on and we start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. It wasn't that simple. There was a lot of stuff that had to come together, a lot of things that bubble up out of the text that says uh, God is in control. Don't think for a second that God is not sovereign. He's sovereign over people, right? He's sovereign over palaces, governments. You wring your hands over our politics that are going on today, both here and, and globally. God is not. God is completely in control. Trust him. He's completely in control of that. This emperor back then sets an arbitrary drop-dead date. And by the way, it was a drop-dead date. You you don't like the the IRS. Try breaking the rules with the taxation of the Roman government. It would be drop-dead for you. You paid them. 
You did what they said. The reason why he has to go at this time and no other, he can't go in the seventh month, he can't go in the tenth month after the baby's born is because the Romans said, you've got to be here at this time. And so everyone is converging on Bethlehem. How many descendants does David have by this time? David was married to some 12, 11, 10 women, had children by all of them. One of his sons, Solomon, was married to 300 women. How many kids did he have? These are, and he had other sons and daughters, and they had other sons and daughters, and these are all descendants of David, and Bethlehem is no bigger than you can throw a rock across, and they all converge on Bethlehem in one weekend or one week. Hey, they're lucky to have some straw to lay on, I would suggest to you. Very crowded place. And all the officials, which would all be Roman, have already taken up any place. If there's any such thing as an inn in Bethlehem, they're living in it. And everyone else is sleeping in the countryside somewhere, including, of course, Mary and Joseph. So, so they arrive in Bethlehem, this, this arbitrary drop-dead date by the Romans, this arbitrary location set up by the Jews, but nonetheless the God of the universe had called the whole thing 700 years in advance. 700 years. So tell me about your life. How's it going? Things feel out of control? I'm going to tell you a little secret. They really are out of control. In fact, Anytime you've ever felt like things were in control, it was just simply a mirage. It was a lie that someone fed you or that you fed yourself. You have never, ever been in control, nor will you ever be. You're not. You cannot call it. You have no idea. You can't, you can't tell me what you're going to do tomorrow. You can tell me what you want to do tomorrow. Neither can I. God is the only one who is in control control and and it would be best for us since god has given us this thought that we could possibly be in control is to take what little thought we have and give it just simply back to him god please orchestrate oversee i mean sometimes we think things are so out of control like like god can't see us or, or maybe worse we can't see him i can't see him working i can't see what he's doing i, I can't it, it, it dark time that i go through listen it's not necessary that you see him it's necessary that you understand that he can see you. That's the part that matters. Not, not whether you got a hold, like I said, it's not, a his, it's not your hold on him that matters, it's his hold on you that matters. You need to know that. He's not letting go, it's his eye on you that matters, not your eye on him. It, it's not your, your, our faithfulness or our faithlessness. He remains faithful, the scripture says. There's a story out of England during the Second World War in the terrible days of World War II when the Germans were bombing uh, London and there was a father who was with his son in a building that got hit by a bomb and then rushing out of the building to get away from the rubble, falling, looking for a place to hide. They come across this bomb crater that was out in front of the building, some 30 feet deep. The day before, a place a bomb had landed. And so the father told the son, we're going to go in this hole, but I'm going to jump first. So that's what he does. He jumps down into just darkness. I mean, it's just, you know, of course, the, the clouds are... are uh, smoke is everywhere. It's already dark, pretty much. And he jumps down this hole. The, the father just disappears into a darkness. And he lands on his feet, and he yells up, okay, jump. Well, the kid's looking down into darkness saying, I can't see you. Father's looking up into silhouetted light. Not, I mean, it's cloudy and nasty, but he still sees his son. He says, it doesn't matter that you can't see me. What matters is that I see you. Jump. And he did. It, what matters is, guys, 
is not whether in your crisis or your circumstances or your difficulties or things seemingly out of control, because believe me, they are, that you can see him. What matters is that he can see you. What matters is that God is in control, never ceases to be in control, never has been anything other than in control. That he's able to orchestrate both, both personal lives and, and public lives and uh, uh, global situations and national situations to do exactly what he planned to do and that none of those plans, none of the stuff that matters is ever changed. Here's the thing I read earlier. I wanted to read it to you. It says, in the midst of any kind of crisis, do not be anxious. Nothing of ultimate importance has ever changed. Isn't that so true? Nothing of ultimate, nothing of what truly matters has ever changed because God's in charge of that. God's seeing through that. And I know in your, in your darkness and the place where you may be today and difficulties and sometimes the, the, things of our, the things we struggle with throughout the year become worse this time of year, don't they? The, the losses we've had, the mistakes we've made, the circumstances that are still gaping and hurting for us throughout the years, like they all just kind of come together and hit a direct point here during the holiday season because they just do. And we're reminded one more time of how weak we are and how out of control we are and again, what, what matters is, is that nothing that really matters has changed. God is still the same God. He still cares. He still loves you. He still has a great plan for your life. He's still watching over your life. He still sees you. When he's calling you to jump, jump. You can trust him. I'm going to ask you please to close your eyes, bow your heads with me as we consider just for a moment here. God pulling together such great things for his one and only son so that to fulfill 700 years of prophecy, he wasn't doing it just to show off. He has no reason and nothing to prove. He was doing that for you. He's doing that to show you who he is and the kind of links he will go to to save you, to bring a savior into your life, to make you right with him, to, to make the most important thing in the universe be put at your foot for you to decide. What an incredible message of how God orchestrates things owing us nothing. We're asking him not, none of these things that we ask God to do, and yet he's done all this for us. What else is he currently doing that we didn't think of? What else is he currently orchestrating that we uh, can't see through? How is he moving? And when someday as we look back over the lives of Mary and Joseph and, and the life and birth of Jesus, we see how God just put things together so well. And looking back into history, 2020 vision, and now sitting here we are not knowing how our lives are going to work out. Listen, you're going to look back someday and say the same thing. How great God is. How good he was. How kind he was. How benevolent he was. How, how foresighted he was of the needs that we have. And... Um, and how considerate he was of the things that's best for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that all those things are true. That you're watching over us, that you're watching over our lives, that which are going to be so out of control and that so much really are. And I pray among other things today, we would say, God, we want you to be in control of our lives. We want you to have the say. We want you to have the glory. We don't want to stop wringing our hands and wiping our brows over stuff that we never could, never will be able to control. We thank you, God, for this uh, incredible story. You becoming one of us.
forever. We love you, God. We commit ourselves to you. And in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.